I'm Michael Laurie and you're listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup. Hello and welcome to this week's Ulster Rugby Roundup as we look back over another week of post-lockdown Ulster action. Adam McKendry in the host chair this week as Gareth has decided to take this week off and we've got a terrific trio with us today as I'm joined on this week's podcast by Belfast Telegraph rugby correspondent Jonathan Bradley Hello and Michael Sadler Hiya, uh, who are the terrific trio? I thought that was awesome. guest coming in. Are there. you included in that? Yeah, Is there somebody else to come? I'm very offended that you didn't think I'd be included <laughs> in the ter- terrific trio You said we're joined by a terrific trio Sorry. Well, that, yeah. that's just my bad writing for the intro. Let's put it down to that. <laughs> we, uh, we do have plenty to wade through this week. We've got this week's semi-final against Edinburgh to look forward to, which is obviously very exciting for the team. Uh, but first, we have to look back on that loss to Leinster at the Aviva Stadium last Saturday. For those of you who maybe haven't seen the game, 28-10, it finished in favour of the Dubliners. Three tries to one. Ulster have now lost both of their games since returning from lockdown. And it was another performance that I think we're safe to say was below par in terms of Ulster's high standards that they've set themselves this season. Johnny, what were your initial thoughts on the game? I thought it was probably an awful lot more of the same from Connacht. The Connacht games, certainly initially, there was an improvement following sort of the 45th minute up until um, either the Scott Penny try or the John Cooney disallowed try, depending on how finely you want to split hairs. But the worry is obviously the continuation of the theme of just a lack of cohesion that we've seen really coming out of lockdown. And while part of that is to be expected, given that they didn't play for six months, it seems to be much more marked than we've seen from certainly the other Irish teams. What, what do you think the reason for that is? I, mean, I know we discussed this last week after the Connick game, but why do you think it's now dragged into a second week? Well, there's still naturally a degree of rust. There's still naturally a degree of a lack of timing. Like you, I suppose you have to bear in mind to a degree that this normally would have been their second preseason game and none of us would really have cared. Like you remember, what was it they got thumped by? Was it the Saints they got thumped by a few years ago? I can't remember. See, exactly. I can't remember. That's the point. I remember a game against Leicester that went kind of badly out in well. Out at Welford Road? Possibly. Possibly. Um, but instead, especially because of the situation where people can't really leave their house and have nothing else to do, this has a huge amount of focus upon it. Whereas normally, there'd be the sort of two or 3,000 diehards that can't wait to the next week for the games that matter watching it, you know? Mm. But the fact that it is so much more pronounced than the other teams to me is just probably an example of the fact that errors and mistakes like that especially when they're so basic are contagious like you see that probably a bad word to use at this time um you see that at all levels of rugby like mistakes like that spread throughout a team and um, because as Dan McFarland alluded to there's nobody at that level of um, playing that level of rugby they can't catch a ball or that 
fumbles it with such um, regularity. Like, not to pick on him, it's just the example that comes to my head. Like, Ian Madigan knows how to catch a ball falling out of the sky without it bouncing through his legs. But these things, they just, one happens and then another happens and then another happens and it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like the narrative. Like, it's, as I say, that's the reality of things at all level of sport, even on a professional level. And you just need, I think, something to go right for you. You need to get a break. Maybe that was the, you know, the Cooney intercept could have been that. Mm. Um, and I, in that regard, I think it's going to be interesting to see how they pitch up moving forward into this week when obviously you don't have the excuse if it doesn't matter. I think it's very interesting you mentioned those compounding errors because there were a couple of times that Ulster made several errors on top of each other because every team makes errors in games. But you know, you, you look at, there's that passage of play where I think it's Matty Ray knocks on, Leinster clear, Ulster make a mess of the line out, uh, Matt Faddis slices one into touch, and all of a sudden they've gone from attacking in the 22 to defending in their own 22. I mean, is it a case of compounding errors that is really hurting them? They'll maybe come to you, Michael, on, on this one. Is it just errors on errors that is, uh, that's really harming Ulster at the moment? Um, well, yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's very hard. It's a curious, a curious situation that we're in, but I think it's a fair point to make for two games in. It's also, I, I know they, they, they did dismiss the idea that last week was kind of disrupted training-wise, but it can't have been ideal that they went in and then were promptly sent home. Um, I don't think that helped either. Um, clearly, clearly, it is a bit of a contagion when things go wrong, or it can be, as we've already stated, and that is clearly what's going on here. The, the leaders and the main people they look to to steady the ship aren't managing it. And... It, that is a worry because these guys are meant to be good enough, uh, but they're making far, far too many of these errors. If they play even remotely like that on Saturday, um, even against, uh, you know, people might think, oh, it's only Edinburgh, you know, they, 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 they will lose the semi final. And, and even, I, I think, even if John Cooney had been allowed, he got that try, I don't think they were ever winning that game against Leinster anyway. Um, I, I just don't think so. I think Leinster would have just gone and scored again anyway. So um, it's impossible, I think, to put your finger on what's wrong. But there are a whole myriad of factors as to why things haven't worked out on the pitch so far. But remember, it's only two games. And unfortunately, it's two games. And we're here now in knockout rugby, which is mm. just unprecedented. So somebody somewhere in that mix is not going to be hitting their straps in quite the same way as they would hope for. Uh, most of the sides probably really aren't. But Ulster just seem to have the most pronounced issue with that at the moment. I've got Here, to say, Adam, you know, I, like I picked out that passage of play in my talking points. And yeah, like Jordy Murphy knocks on. They spend a minute um, setting the line out, mess up the line out. And then there's the another sort of knock on the hack through and the slice clearance. If you're looking for this um, tangible net effect of making mistake on mistake, it's like a thing that Joe Schmidt used to always focus on, piggybacking mistakes. 
in the space of a minute and a half, one minute of which was taken with the line-out, they gave up possession in 70 metres. You look at the Connacht game, there's a Marty Moore knock-on, followed by a scrum penalty, and that's how Connacht scored their first try. So it's a mistake then compounded by another mistake. And then the defensive mistakes that led to Connacht's first try. So obviously with the greater frequency of mistakes, they're going to come close together, but it's the ones that are coming in that sort of essentially five to ten second periods of actual ball and play time that are the ones that are the real killer at the minute because it just you cede so much territory as well as possession and it just gives the other team without having to earn it a platform to launch attack from you're just watching them at the moment you're actually waiting for the hours to come you're not looking at it i think in another way you just think oh there's a line out in the corner oh, there's a good chance they're not going to win this. You're not thinking, oh, that's a great position. They're going to do this, that, and the other thing. Watching them at the moment also gives the impression that perhaps they also maybe, their own self-belief may well have taken a bit of a knock um, as well, which would be entirely understandable. It feels Um, very like pre-season. Like, it feels very like they're trying to build, but they're not really getting there because other teams are kind of ahead of them. It is a bit like that, I suppose. But unfortunately, it's not where we are at. And um, that's, that's going to really punish them um, if, if they can't write that. And uh, they simply have to write it on, on, on Saturday. Um, you know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. But there's, I think there's very little evidence to suggest at the moment that they're ready to move, into, uh, move up a gear or three, shall we say, um, to, to be heading where they need to be heading. Yeah, when you consider the fact that they made, I think it was nine unforced errors in Saturday's game, and you've only got a week to try and rectify that to play one of the teams who, certainly in the first game against Glasgow, they did have a good hit out. They were one of the best teams before the lockdown uh, came into effect as well. It, they've got a lot to fix before, they, uh, before they're able to really compete on Saturday, I think. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, you know, they're not... Everybody said it, you know, they said it after the first game, they said it after the second game. They're not going to win a semi-final playing like that. We'll get into it later. Personally, I don't think they're going to be in a position to win the semi-final anyway, if they're missing as many players as they might be missing. But that's for a later conversation. Like, it is unfortunate more than anything else that um, they're in a position where they're scrambling for momentum going into the playoffs because... It's just the nature of this season that the big, you know, the big games are now. If this was at the start of the season, there'd be an awful lot of hand wringing, obviously, about losing two games in a row. But it wouldn't be you've lost two games in a row. You look like you've come out of the blocks slower out of preseason than everybody else. But by the way, the most important game of your season is this weekend. But there's nothing that can be done about that. That's the situation that you find yourself in when you're playing rugby in the middle of a global pandemic. Well, I think this is probably a good time to bring in that injury update then. Obviously, you saw Jacob Stockdale, Jordy Murphy and Stuart McCluskey all go off uh, at the weekend. Jacob Stockdale and Stuart McCluskey both have contusions, which, as we've discussed off-air, uh, is basically a fancy name for a bruise. And Jordy Murphy is undergoing the return-to-play protocols because he suffered a concussion. Is it safe to say that Ulster aren't winning this game without at least one of them being available, if not 
two and possibly all three of them? Well, they're not winning with Marcel Coutinho as their only ball carrier, I'll say that. Um, they're already without Henderson. Mm. You can make the case that McCluskey, the way that Ulster play and the frequency with which they look to McCluskey, makes him a player that they can't afford to be without. Stockdale's certainly in the absence of Will Addison and Robert Balakin gives them a player who can create uncertainty in a back line in a way that nobody else can for them at the minute because of, I suppose, just you see it all the time. You saw it loads with Connor actually. Like the ability for a player to vary things and to do the unpredictable just freezes defenders for the split second that creates line breaks at this level. So he's obviously a massive loss. And again, you know, even you look at Jordy Murphy, like he's um, somebody's contribution, I think certainly up here, maybe goes um, unheralded perhaps. But like, do you want to be going into a semi-final against, especially against that Edinburgh back row, bear in mind, without one, his experience, and two, just the overall detrimental effect that it has to your own list forwards trio if you're missing two of your three starters? They find it difficult enough against that Leinster back row, but to go in against the likes of Hamish Watson and be without Jordy Murphy, um, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it, it certainly doesn't augur well. Um, yeah. like Hamish, Hamish even, Watson's even, unreal. Like he's probably the most, yeah. one of the, sorry, he's one of the most underrated players in the league. And obviously Bill Matt is a monster. Like, um, just in terms of, you talk about unpredictability, you know that's what he gives you it's not obviously a strict comparison between your back row to theirs but that would certainly be an area where they would look to get look to get an advantage against anyone when they play I think Edinburgh's back row is one of the most balanced in the league in terms of having that genuine open side in Hamish Watson you've got the massive ball carrier that is Bill Matta and then whoever they slot in at six is basically the foil to those two because they can either be another uh, threat at the breakdown or you can throw in another ball carrier to give Mata a bit of support so I think that's something that Edinburgh have really done well in terms of building their depth and having that back row that is really settled and works on all facets and that's before we even get to their back three of course of They're course they tasty as well but never mind <laughs> we'll move on to that later but I find it interesting in commentary I think it was Mark Robson asked Bernard Jackman what is Ulster's game plan if they don't have Stuart McCluskey and Marcel Coetzee? And they're facing up to the prospect of not having one of them for this weekend's game. Do either of you have any answers as to what Ulster's game plan is if they don't have Stuart McCluskey this weekend? I was going to say what the Barcelona do without Messi, but that's probably a bad example. Um, <laughs> We're about to find out. Yeah, like McCluskey, I think, is a player who Ulster's game plan is built around in the sense that so much of what they do appears, maybe to the untrained eye, but appears to be to get the ball in McCluskey's hands, to get the ball in Kutsia's hands. And Henderson, when he's there, and hope that if you can recycle after one of them carries, get the other one on the ball, then the space that they create by drawing in the defenders, like you saw it, obviously, great example of it on Saturday night. You know, they didn't have too many too many good moments, but one of them was created by Katsia Burst offload to McCluskey, and those two players create such a need for 
the opposition defence to focus upon that it creates space out wide. I think it was in this case it was either for Herring, who is like Herring's a, a great benefiter of that because he plays the, I suppose the one of the you know if the four is split into pods, and there's a, the spare out wide is normally Herring because one he's got a great ability to break the line and when he gets when he gets moving he's got real pace to him, and um, so he you know. It's things like that that create space for the other ball carriers. And when you, we've seen it, I think, in the last two weeks when you're down to just having two of them, that is bad. But if you just have Katsia, then you would imagine that in the same way that Leinster used Will Connors of just really using him to line up the big ball carriers and chop them down at source, like Edinburgh can, as good as Katsia is, Edinburgh can just zone in on that. You become very one-dimensional if you only have Katsia to turn to. What, what do you make of James Hume in terms of he does have that potential to be a good ball carrier? Do you think he's capable of stepping into McCluskey's shoes in terms of being that go-to guy in the back line for ball carrying? Or is this something that Ulster can only get from McCluskey? Michael, you're shaking your head there. I can see you. Was I shaking my head? Sorry, I was just looking to the side. Um, well, he may have to, whether he likes it or not, uh, try and fill that role. Um, I would imagine that most people would say that he probably doesn't look quite ready for that. So if that is the case, that's putting an enormous uh, burden on, on him as he sort of finds his way um, at, at this stage of his career. Um, but the midfield is an issue going into this game uh, if they do I mean, lose Stuart anyway, who do you even because select? Luke Marshall, you... I believe, is out as well. But yeah. do we know when Luke Marshall is fit again? I'm not sure we do. do we? Well, we've, no, we've been told we've been told he'll not be playing this weekend. <clears throat> so we don't we don't know. Let's say Ulster got to the final, we don't even know he'd be fit for that. So that that opens up the question of who do you even select on the centre if McCloskey's not available? He may be available, but if not, like you're you're actually <clears throat> running a bit low on options <clears throat> because Will Addison isn't available, so you can't bring. Hume into 12 and put Addison there. Uh, Faddis hasn't played there for a while. Uh, Ludic hasn't played there for a while. Stockdale hasn't played there for a while. And we're not sure <coughs> if he's available or not Excuse either. Me. Ulster don't actually have that many options well, in the centre. There's Stuart Moore floating around, but it would be Would you pitch him a, into a semi-final? Quite a huge early? ask to do that. No, I don't think you would actually. But I'm just saying that's another name that, that, that's there. Um, I don't know. They 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 do they have a they have a big problem in this area if they can't get Stuart McCluskey out onto the onto Murrayfield on Saturday evening, and I'm sure that they will do absolutely everything to try and make sure that he can somehow or other trundle out on Saturday evening. But I I don't know what they could do realistically, and I really don't know what they do. I, I, I mean, like- there are a number of options, but none of them look as if. Not that they're not good options, but that that's going to be the combination that's going to work for them. Well, you would have to play in a different way because you don't have a replacement for McCluskey in that in that sense. I thought Hume had a good game on Saturday. I thought he was one of Ulster's better players. Big improvement from the week before, I thought. Um, and I guess you would probably see Fadis move into 13. I think he played there against Leinster and maybe Scarlets this season, possibly. Um, so I'm guessing that would be what you see in either Gilroy or Ludic coming onto the wing. But I think I th- I think he'd probably play anyway. Like you can't, I suppose you can't make any uh, 
firm assertion of how he's going to pitch up when he gets there, but I'm guessing that he'll play. And uh, um, obviously, like, you can't make any prognosis on Murphy because that's just down to the return to play protocols. What about defensively? And I ask this specifically because of the Scott Penny try. Um, what, what happened there? Because I think a lot of people were sort of asking, how on earth did he get into that much space with the kick in behind? Yeah, well, social distancing in action, I guess. He was just given lots and lots and lots of space. Maybe offside. Like, I don't think there was a replay angle that really showed uh, the wide, the wider angle that you needed. I'm not sure at that point was Dave Shanahan on the pitch or not. I don't at think he point. was. I don't because if he so. had been, I, I assume he got fired out to the wing. Um, so I, I don't know if he wasn't. He was just about to anyway. There's just a lot of space in behind for that kick. There and may I'm have ju- been some confusion, you know, defensively at that point if McCluskey wasn't mm-hmm. right anyway and it was about to go off, or whether he'd already gone off. Maybe they just they just didn't set right, and you know there was lots of space, and these things happen, and they just picked it out. And yeah, he might have been offside. That's true, but you know that's what happens. Um, just, they, they saw an opportunity and they went for it and they got it. I'm just wondering because we've been talking so much about the attack and the errors made in the attack, and of course those need addressed. But on the on the flip side, Ulster conceded four tries against Connacht. They conceded three against Leinster, and although they were improved, you know it's still three tries against. Do you think defence needs improved as much as attack, or is it more the attacking side that really needs addressed ahead of next week or this week? They're allowing teams a chance at them because they're giving them field position because of errors in attack, if you know what I mean. It's not a case of they're a good defensive team or they're a bad attacking team or vice versa. That you know, it's all interlinked together. Like if they maintain pressure on teams which they're not able to do because they're making too many errors but if they can maintain that pressure then the byproduct of that is that the pressure isn't on their defensive systems either we shall leave those games in the past then uh ulster having lost both their games back yeah probably thank goodness because we've got a semi-final to look forward to this weekend let's get an optimistic mindset we've had the two bad games Ulster are now going to turn a corner. That's pre-season, out of the way, if you want to call it that. And we're now into the games that matter. How important is it to get a good start this week, Michael, having seen the last two weeks where they've fallen behind early and they've never really recovered from that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's one of the fundamentals. Funny, I did ask Dan that question, but I didn't really get... Um... Uh, I felt a, a direct answer about the fact that he might well be worried about the fact that they... They ship, they've been shipping points early. Um, of course, it, it just goes it, it, it goes to the territory. You've got to make a good start. And I mean, to fall, if they were to do something similar and go 16-0 behind, you, you wouldn't... That's not worth it. Uh, not even worth thinking about because there really isn't really much um, hope of you coming back from that sort of situation. Um, yeah, I mean... You know, what they've got to do is, like anything else, they've got to go out and they mustn't concede points early and they must try and get some sort of um, presence on the scoreboard, if nothing else, or for no other reason, to just settle them down because, you know, they're only human and they're going to be suffering, uh, you know, because of of how they've been playing. So that's an absolute necessity. Um, And, you know, if, if if they don't do that, then, um, well, 
you, you could be looking at a, a possibility of, of a third well below par performance. Um, and Edinburgh trundling their way through to, to, the, to the final. It's even something we saw last year in last year's semi-final when they went over to Glasgow. And I think they were 14-0 down within the first five or six minutes, mm. uh, which, you know, that was a horrible start. And in, our, in the press conference yesterday, you, we're recording this on Tuesday, so the press conference was Monday, um, the guys were saying, you know, that semi-final is playing on their minds going into this week. Johnny, what, what are your recollections of last year and how much do you think it will be weighing on their minds? Well, obviously, I think last year... The phrase that Dan used was sorry to the experience. So for that team, if you want to look at that team under a new coaching ticket and a whole host of new players, that was their first experience of knockout rugby. All the guys that you sorry, most of well, the guys Well, was their second experience. They'd already had the European quarterfinal. Sorry, yes. That that season was their first experience of knockout rugby. And they probably came away from the mm-hmm. European quarterfinal having felt like they gave a good account of themselves. They probably came away from the Connacht quarterfinal, if you want to count that. I don't think, you know, it's an expanded playoff field. It's not really the same, is it? Um, feeling like they gave a good account of themselves. And then the semi-final of the Pro 14, and especially then having to ruminate over that for like four months, was a horrible way to finish what had been a good season. The phrase that Dan used yesterday, it was sour. So if you think about that, of course, it played on their minds because it coloured the perception of what was a very encouraging season. But even that, I think, was less so than a bad performance and bad results this weekend would colour the perception of this season. Like, I think if they have another no-show this season, then people will look at it and say, well, you got to the semi-finals last year, you got to the last eight in Europe last year, and it was a huge huge progression but you haven't kicked on again if you have a similarly bad result in the semi-final off the back of that you you did ask Dan yesterday in the press conference whether they would have to win this week in order for it to constitute progression from their performances last season to this season do you personally feel like a win or they have to win in order for it to constitute success or progression No, I feel that they have to win for it to be viewed as progression. I don't think they have to win for it to be progression, if that makes sense. Um, The nature of this season being what it is, in that it's completely unprecedented and will hopefully, touch wood, never be repeated, renders it something of a wild card in my eyes. Like, Does the fact that they had to stop playing for six months have any real and sorry had to stop every six months and have emerged from that playing poorly negate everything that went before it I don't think so for in my mind they were looking better than the year before up until the end of February uh, they had certainly looked at even more convincing if you like in Europe I don't think they'd left themselves with as much to do in Europe thought they were more competitive in nearly all of their games um Obviously, I didn't see the um, shellacking by the cheetahs in uh, South Africa, so I can't can't uh, can't speak to that because it was at know, three o'clock in the morning Japan time or something. You're not dedicated enough to get up to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I got up a few days beforehand to watch Spurs, and I got beat seven two, so that was the end of it. Um, and I think in the same way that 
Ireland's 2015 World Cup, it's impossible to judge what would have happened if those players had been fit. I think this is the same. But history doesn't remember the fact that Ireland were missing five players from the quarterfinal against Argentina in the same way that history won't remember that Ian Henderson, Balakud, Marshall, Reedy, Addison and any number of those other three are going to be missing from this game. It's just, again, 100% similar to Ireland. It's just a team once again hitting their head on that glass ceiling that always seems to trip them up. But, sorry, to properly answer the question, (laughs) I don't think that they have to win for this season. They've been better than than last. But I completely understand that historically in six months' time, 12 months' time, 18 months' time, people aren't going to remember the differences. So from a perception point of view, both fans and even just in a wider Pro 14 rugby sense, they do have to win. Michael, do you agree? I don't think people will forget the impact the pandemic has had. They will, of course, forget about how many players didn't turn out for Ulster and perhaps how poorly Ulster have played and how difficult it's been for them. Um, I think what Dan said yesterday is quite illuminating, though. I think he said he wanted to win massively, but he was kind of looking more, I think he said he was looking more at the potential performance and, you know, how they've got to this point and that he would measure it in that regard, which sounded to me a bit odd because I thought when you got to a semi-final, you weren't interested in anything that had happened to get to that point or performance. The important thing is just to, to go out and win the game. So I'm not, I'm not saying that's an admission that, um, that he is very anxious about what he feels they'll be putting out on the pitch. But I think to reach a final of any description at all will be progress for them. And whether they are equipped, properly equipped to get into this final, where we all assume um, that they will face Leinster, is another factor altogether. But I, I, I do think it's important that they, they win this game and that they can hold their hands up and say, yes, we have progressed towards the first final. What would be the first final they've been in in about, what is it, seven, is it seven, seven years. years? Yeah, And that's, that's very, very important for Ulster Rugby to start hitting these, these marks again. The problem with, that they have is, of course, it's almost seemingly like an eternal problem with Leinster. That's assuming, of course, we always expect Leinster to, to, to be there. I, I think it's I think it's terribly unfortunate for them that they're in this position now, playing so badly and, and, and having nothing really to bring to the party except poor form and a, a barrel load of injuries only two games in. And I don't think that will be remembered at all. Um, I think it's just all that people remember is what final were you in? You know, mm. How many finals did you make? How many finals did you win? <laughs> Which, as we know in Ulster's case, is, is, is a very, very poor return indeed. And I think that, I think that they, they have to reach this final. I'm not saying that that's going to affect what, what, what's to come for hopefully an, an entire season after we wrap this one up. But I, I think that um, as a yardstick, you just have to make final shootouts, whether you win them or you don't win them. That's what I think anyway. I have no confidence that they will win it. And they will progress. After having seen them now the last two weeks, that, that is the problem. I definitely see your point. And I think 2013, I don't, I don't know what you guys think, maybe it's just me, 2013 doesn't feel that long ago to me. But if you look at the team that actually 
played in that semi-final against Scarlets in 2013, you got seven minutes off the bench for Rob Herring, and nobody else who played in that semi-final will be playing at the weekend. So no one else playing that semi-final is even involved with the team anymore. So yeah, like as Michael points out, I think mentally it would be a huge step forward to win a semi-final no matter what happens because nobody in the squad, unless they've done it with Leinster, has experience of doing that. But I also I also think it would be wrong to discount everything on the basis of one game that five of your best players aren't playing in. Like you can say that you're always going to get injuries, but I don't think anybody um, in the league is going to have five of their best players missing for this important a game at this stage. How how important do you think that? lack of experience would be because I know you've got the likes of Jack McGram, Marty Murr, um, guys who have done it with Leinster before. You've got Sam Carter who's been in, in a couple of finals with the Brumbies, I think. But generally across the board, as you said, there's not really guys who have been there and done it in the knockout stages of either Europe or, or the Pro 14. But Edinburgh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't think they have too many guys who have that experience either. Do you think that's going to be a big factor coming up against a team who are similarly inexperienced at this stage of the season? I think that you can bring a certain amount having done it elsewhere. And I think that experience can be very valuable, but I don't think it translates into the meaningful way that people might expect until a team does it. You can transplant winners from somewhere else, but until you you can't create a winning culture, I don't think personally without winning. And, you know, you talk about always wanting to be a team that's at this point of the season. And that's what Ulster have even said in the last couple of weeks. But I think that to create that winning culture, you have to be winning these games, not just getting to them. Like, so much of it's on the day. And, like, are Ulster going to be a better team or a worse team? If Edinburgh turn up and have a stinker and Ulster squeak by them not playing well themselves, probably not. But it is a, it's a large mental step to be able to take as a team rather than a collection of individuals that have done it elsewhere, mostly for Leinster, you know? Michael, you mentioned Edinburgh's back three earlier. Um, I, I think we uh, we all know the threat of Duhan van der Merwe on the wing. He's possibly the best winger in the Pro 14 at the moment. What what do you make of their back three? How, how good are they? Excellent. A really, really dangerous um, attacking unit. And um, Ulster mustn't give them any opportunity. I mean, Van der Merwe's stats are pretty pretty mad, really. Um, he makes the game look so easy. And whenever you then yeah. put Blair Kinghorn beside him at fullback, yeah, yeah. you know, the dual yeah. threat of those two is massive. Yeah, yeah. It, no, it's, 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 a, it's a huge danger. Um, and, you know, they're not, you know, they're, they're a good side. They've, as we talked before about their back row, and Hamish Watson's another outstanding player. Um, they're not top heavy with huge huge quality but what they have is pretty darn good um you know these guys will do an enormous amount of damage if given any opportunity um so you you simply you cannot invite them into the game you know you you simply must not allow them to get any sort of traction in the game um i don't know if ulster if they can't eradicate the errors especially saying line outs um, if they can't manage to dominate the breakdown and they do need Jordy Mur- Murphy's grunt in there to try and, and, and do everything to, to stem that um, they're going to find 
there are going to be instances in the game when these guys can operate, particularly Kilhorn and Van der Merwe, and that that that's going to be very hard to live with. Very hard to live with. So I I, I just don't know. I I really don't know how they're they're going to manage to do that. Um, but clearly. Um, they're going to have to somehow or other come up with some kind of game plan, which at least, at the very least, allows them to play with accuracy and, and allows them also to, to, to actually mount some meaningful attacking moves, which is something that we also very worryingly have not really seen. Um, fits and starts will not win this semi-final. There has to be consistency. And, you know, Edinburgh will have their moments on top, but you, you, you simply have to, 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 to be able to play your own game as well. And at the moment, we, 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 just don't, we just haven't really seen that. So you'd expect, obviously, Billy Burns to come back in. You would expect John Cooney not to have as poor a game again. And an awful lot will ride on how they game manage, I think, in, in, in this semi-final. Personally, I think this game's really interesting in terms of the two teams that are in it, purely because of how similar they are in terms of where they've progressed from. And it, it was only... Uh, one of the, the Scottish journalists in the press conference yesterday brought it up in terms of uh, Edinburgh apparently were called a basket case as well. I don't recall that, but apparently they were. And we all know Ulster being called a basket case by Brian O'Driscoll. But you look at how Richard Cockrell has taken over Edinburgh and has taken them from very clearly the second side who were losing players to Glasgow because they wanted to be on a winning team rather than playing for Edinburgh but now he's really injected a fresh impetus into them. They've got a lot of good faces, a lot of good foreign imports, and now they're really a team on the up compared to Glasgow. And then you've also got Ulster, who since Dan McFarland took over, are really on the up, are really playing some much better rugby, maybe not recently, but on the whole since Dan McFarland took over. So I think this is a really interesting semi-final in the context of where these two teams have come from and where they are now. I don't know if you guys feel the same, but just looking at this game, maybe even trying to look at it from a neutral perspective, I think it's quite a quite an interesting matchup between these two sides. No, I agree with you 100%. Um, pretty much the intro of a piece I'm writing later in the week, so... Uh, <laughs> but, um, Sorry. <laughs> I think there are two teams that are on and have been, especially because they've been in the same conference. I thought at first it was unfortunate that they were split up this year because I thought they were building a nice rivalry between each other, playing each other twice a year. I think they're on an almost identical trajectory and have been. I think in terms of the league, it's been very unfortunate that Edinburgh's rise has come at the same time as a dip from Glasgow because I think, I've said it so many times, like when we're talking about this league as a whole in this league as a product, like it just needs more competitive teams. So the fact that Edinburgh have got their act together at a time when Glasgow have fallen off and Scarlets have fallen off hasn't really helped matters, but you almost <laughs> shudder to think what the quality of the playoffs could have been if Edinburgh hadn't progressed in the way that they have under Richard Cockrell. And if you look at certainly Edinburgh, you, you, know, you mentioned that basket case idea and you know, they had a literal rebrand at a time when people were saying that Ulster were in need of a metaphorical rebrand. There were two teams that really just needed to change the way that people looked at them. And both coaches have gone a long way to starting that process and getting into a final would be a huge step for both of those to continue it. Whereas, you know, you look at the other semi-final and it's um, 
as good a game as we expect it to be, depending on how Monster pitch up after such a short turnaround. The fa- being in the final wouldn't have the same effect on either of those teams because they've done it so so many times before, albeit Monster not for five years and haven't won a trophy in longer than that. Mm. So plenty yeah, riding. I mean, um, Richard Richard Cockrell and Dan McFarland have one thing very much in common, and that is that culturally they've changed the sides that they now coach. They've done a great deal to change that mindset and to inject, you know, an idea that, that, that you know this this is a squad that is going places and that has a very clear identity with its supporters and in the direction that it wants to head in. What they haven't done is obviously go to the next stage, which is actually achieve what you might deem as some sort of success, which as ever is going to be pitched against the gold standard of Leinster. And sooner or later, you're going to have to probably play Leinster and reach a final, assuming Leinster make it. So for both these guys, it's also a very interesting point, I think, in their coaching careers at these sides. And it's both vitally important for them in the continuing development of what they're attempting to do, both at Murrayfield and the Kingspan, that they do pitch up in a shootout for some sort of silverware. Because it just has to be. If you're, if you're doing that, that's where you need to be. It's all very fine what you do off the pitch. It's all very fine how you change game plans, how you sign new players, and how you mix and match squads. But at the end of the day, you've got to be there and you've got to be contesting. You've got to contest um, trophies. Um, and it's funny, isn't it, that if one Scottish side's quite good, the other one normally isn't. It's one of the very frustrating, frustrating things about the Pro 14 that you rarely, you know, if one, you know, like we saw the Scarlets and then we saw them go, uh, and now we've seen this, this, the same switching round in Scotland. It's kind of bizarre. It's a shame because that, that makes it, it detracts, I think, from it overall. But I think anyway, I forgot. Good, I, the yeah. Irish teams are normally good yeah. out of the four of them. If you had two good Scottish teams and even two good Welsh teams, mm-hmm. you know, and the Cheetahs are, um, well, Cheetahs probably aren't going to be here for too much longer anyway, but, you know, um, they were competitive half the time anyway. So it would have been a huge thing for the league that really just needs more better teams going against each other. But Even, even if they are peaking and troughing, as long as there's consistently seven or eight good teams rather than three or four it just makes it for a much better product to watch yeah well i suppose if you can't make your own teams good you can just import four from a different hemisphere to be good (laughs) so predictions on the line lads are we going to be looking forward to a pro 14 final this time next week or are ulster gonna have their season well sorry the pro 14 season we've still got a european quarterfinal to look forward to but will their pro 14 season be over come Saturday night? I think so. And look, that's not to be overly negative. I just think, with the exception of Leinster, any team at this stage of the competition missing anywhere between five and eight of their best players is going to lose. And I mean, like, I know I say this on the back of Leinster seconds having beaten Ulster at their weekend, but I'm not even convinced that if you were to take, you know, we've seen Leinster win without, say, Johnny Sexton and Dan Levy, but I think if you were to take Sexton, Levy, Henshaw, James Ryan, and James Lowe out of their team. I think it would make a very different proposition even for them at this stage of the season. Like because they've because they've looked so bad on the field the past two weeks, I think it, that's been the focus of discussion more than just this bizarre 
run of injuries that happened when nobody was playing any games. Michael, win or loss, put your money on the table. Um, I think I think they'll play better. Uh, I don't think they'll win though. Yeah. I thought I thought you were just going to leave it as they'll play better, and you you weren't going to say win or loss. <laughs> uh, no, I, I I'm I'm afraid the. I don't. I, there's no. There's not enough there to suggest that they're they're gonna they're gonna click. Well, I'll, I'll be really. I'll be the fresh air of positivity then. I'll say though, surprise us all, put in a good performance that we've been waiting for, and they'll win and they'll get to the final. I thought you were gonna end it with the. It'll be better. They'll put in a good performance and they'll, they'll get beat by five. Nah, <laughs> nah. Some, someone's got to back them, right? Someone's got to back them. <laughs> Um, just before we finish, some news in the All Ireland League, uh, which we have been short of, obviously because of lockdown. Uh, but former Italy international Ian McKinley has joined Rainy Old Boys as an assistant coach, which really came out of the blue. Uh, Michael, you you had the story in the Telegraph last week. Can, can you give us any sort of context? How did this come about? What? How did an Italian international end up in Magrafelt? Well. He's there because his wife's from Balaki and they've decided to move back from Northern Italy. It's as simple as that and as straightforward as that. And he didn't actually say to Rainey that he was going to show up. He turned up one night and watched them and then approached the coaching staff and uh, asked if they needed a hand. It's, uh, that's really what happened. It fell out of the sky. Crack it, cracking signing for them. like To get someone with that experience and with that talent, that's going to be huge for them as they try to progress up the up the leagues yeah it is he's very interested in coaching he's done quite a bit of coaching over in Italy um he continued I think to do a bit even when he got back into the pro game so coaching's always been something he was very interested in and uh, I was lucky enough to get to speak to him as well actually which was good he had thought about some sort of role out in Italy but with you know well here we are we're back with the pandemic the impact of the pandemic um, and also the impact it's had in the professional game. Looking at his options, uh, they decided uh, to come back to Ireland and uh, his wife in particular um, to uh, Balahi, where the family run a business. And that seemed to be the most pragmatic move that they could make at that particular point. So that, that's what they've done. Has he picked up an Italian accent since he's been away or is he still an Irishman through and through? Well, I mean, as he didn't speak any Italian to me, but I'm sure he can speak Italian, I couldn't say, but he still very much has a, his, his, uh, his, his Dublin twang about him. So, no, he, he's not speaking right in up here, says you. What's that? He'll fit right in up here then, says you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that's it. But interestingly, he, he made it clear that he's not actually formally retired from the professional game. So you can draw your own conclusions from that. He would be an NIQ now because he's an Italian international. So I, I suppose that sort of works against him in making a return mm. to Ireland. But or in, in turn, sorry to one of the provinces. I mean, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of teams that'll be willing to take a shot on him. I mean, a guy who's played international rugby, you they don't come along too often. You know, I don't know I, if there was an emergency. Would he be? Is that what he's possibly thinking of I, I don't honestly know he hasn't played any rugby at all since um, they played the Dragons I think in March just before lockdown I think he was on the bench that night and he hasn't played at all uh, since then so I, I, I don't know if it means anything at all but I think the, what we do know is that he will be uh, for the moment anyway he's certainly going to be with Rainy Old Boys 
Well, that's a cracking signing for them in the meantime, and we'll certainly keep an eye on what happens to him from there. But that is our time up. Um, another cracking week on the podcast. Uh, that game against Edinburgh, Saturday night, Murrayfield, 7.35 p.m. kickoff. Winner goes through to the final against either Leinster or Munster. Should be a thriller. Jonathan, you'll be at it? Yep, yep. Hopefully, um, yes. Well, I'm going to find out for definite this afternoon, but hopefully, yes. You and me both. Thank you very much to Jonathan. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. Okay, bye all. Thank you. And we will catch you again next week. Hopefully we'll have a final to look forward to. See you later.